I guess like most immigrants, I'm quite proud of what I've achieved because I couldn't take it for granted. I built it myself. And I think a lot of people that move countries, regardless where they come from, that plays a big part. You got something to prove and you got to prove yourself that you can do it. Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon. And yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. In this episode, I speak with Nicolas Aton, who was born and bred in Angers, France, and now lives in Bristol. Nicolas is the CEO of The Three Million, the largest campaign organisation for EU citizens in the UK, which was formed after the 2016 Brexit referendum. As you'll hear, the Brexit vote was a defining moment for Nicolas and changed the course of his life and career. We talked over Zoom during lockdown about getting by in the UK without speaking the language, being lucky enough to find your calling in life, and what the next post-Brexit battles will be for EU citizens living here. Enjoy. My name is Nicholas Hatton, or Nicolas Hatton, and I am an immigrant. Thank you for coming on the show, Nicolas. Do you feel like an immigrant? It's a very good question. I think like many EU citizens who came to the UK using our freedom movement, we didn't particularly feel like immigrants. <laughs> I moved from uh, Angers in the Loire Valley in '95 to London. And uh, it was very much moving from one European city to another European city. I spent a lot of energy to uh, integrate, to learn the language, the culture. I was completely focused on that goal, not necessarily consciously. So I never felt like someone outside the community because I so wanted to be in the community, I guess. But with insight, I've always been an immigrant. Because that's where you are when you 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 come from a, a different place, and somehow I will always be perceived as one, even by my closest friends, because I don't have the shared lived experience of growing up in the country. Is it a very regular thing that people, once you start speaking and they can hear you have a French accent, they'll immediately move to that? Oh, you're from France, or where are you from? Well, not particularly during COVID, <laughs> because I don't meet new people all the time. But uh, so many conversations, I was like, oh, where, where are you from? And when I say I'm from Bristol, they say, oh, yeah, but originally. <laughs> so, of course, then the conversation is all about, oh, but uh, I, I've got uh, an uncle or, or my dad lives in France and all this sort of... Uh, uh, I like baguettes uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, at the same time, people are trying to find common ground. So, you know, it can be perceived as slightly xenophobic, like I've got black friends. But actually, what they're trying to say is that we've got some common ground. So mm. I take it quite positively. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but you have spent half of your life in France and half of your life in the UK. Exactly. Yeah, so you're, woo, you're, you've balanced yourself out now. <laughs> so let's talk about your first 25 years in France. What was that like? I lived in... Uh, the suburb of Angers. So Angers is a, is a really pretty Loire Valley city, lovely castle, river flowing in the middle, the whole city centre is pedestrianised. But it's got the same social uh, issues as most cities in France. So my 
parents lived in a house built in the 70s, which was not very far from the council estate with all, all the tower blocks. So while I went to school, we definitely had a, a very mixed community of the children. But unlike England, the class system doesn't run through French society in the same way. So that social mixity was definitely seen very positively from, uh, from, uh, by my parents. And although there was a sense that we were different, many, many most of my friends actually uh, live in, uh, in tower blocks and I spent lots of time there and that was, uh, you know, it was fine. After my baccalaureate, I studied law for four years and that was very formative. I never then practiced law. I actually didn't really like it. It became very useful when uh, Brexit came because it made me realize a lot of things about Brexit. And then I studied a postgrad in art management because uh, I was really interested in uh, especially uh, music and live performance. But it was the mid-90s, exciting times for many people, but there's a slight economic downfall in France. So when I was available to work, uh, there was no jobs. And France being France, if your parents don't have a network, it's more difficult to get your first job as well, especially in the arts world. So uh, after a year of uh, looking for work, being on the world sort of income support, I decided it's time for a new adventure and I moved to London. The reason it was London and not Berlin or Barcelona or Madrid or, or any other city, and I really wanted to go leave France, is that I uh, absolutely loved British music. And what I mean by, by that is uh, it was mostly um, post-punk. My favorite band was Susie and Banshees. Any, anything that came from Britain seems to be magically uh, in tune <laughs> with my feelings. Uh, and it was the mid-90s. I, I was quite into uh, electronic music. And, uh, you know, the London was the mecca of raving. When I came to London then in 95, it felt very international. And uh, London, you know, it was such a breath of fresh air for someone who came from a country that I felt a bit narrow-minded. What do you miss about France that you've left behind? I think that when I go back on holiday in the summer and I managed to stay in touch with uh, most of my friends after mm. 25 years, it's the lifestyle, l'apéro, as we call it, the, the, the pre-dinner drinks at half past five, uh, where <laughs> you can just visit friends unannounced or they can visit you. It's a bit more, more relaxed, actually. Mm. I'm thinking possibly in an ideal world, I love to live in England in the winter month somehow and then spend uh, the summer month in France. So spending the worst of the weather working and when the weather is better, just staying in France, working less. Yeah. <laughs> and having, having lots of drinks with friends unannounced. And what don't you miss about France? I think when you're young, and I guess it's true in this country, it's true everywhere, it's hard to find new place in society. And there's a, a quest for identity at the same time. So when, when you leave your country for a country that you identify being better, you sort of uh, try to find your identity, but you haven't got this moral or peer pressure from your, your friends or your family, you, you extract yourself from this. So you can develop more freely. And I, I think that was, uh, you know, that, that was important. I mean, on a practical level, it was just impossible for me to work in France. It was just, uh, but also when I arrived in England, I worked within three days. And my first job was outside Bond Street tube station, oh, yeah. selling pain chocolat. Possibly I could have done that in, in Angers, but you got some sort of 
pride when you're at home, which stops you from uh, thinking, okay, uh, I could say pain chocolat, but I'm a graduate, come on, I, could, I should work uh, at my level. But, you know, when you're a migrant, where you do whatever you need to survive, just throw yourself in, don't you? Yeah, I worked in pubs and restaurants and all sorts of things, dishwashing. And so did you know the language very well when you arrived? I thought I did. <laughs> English was my favourite subject at school. I've been to England eight times before uh, moving here permanently. I was useless. I just couldn't understand the people. They couldn't understand me. I mean, that hasn't changed that much. Really. <laughs> and it took me uh, you know, six months to get to a level that I could really understand at least what people were saying. I think that, you know, the, the, what you listen in the street, the, the language that people are speaking are, are different. And then I studied as well. I took the Cambridge proficiency exam for foreign students just to make sure that I could really grasp all the subtlety of the language. I did cloakroom. I did customer services in French and in English. I did various 10 jobs and it's only after five years that I got my first more permanent position working for Shell on the Strand. In life, it's quite, it's quite funny because I think I was just drifting or flowing really uh, and uh, enjoying life, not really thinking too much about career, about anything really. Then I met a British girl, which became my wife. And then I got a more permanent job. Someone in that company recognized was so something in me that I couldn't see myself. And I got promoted to a job that I had no experience in, apart from having a diploma in marketing. And that set me off into my career. So from after eight years working for Shell, I became the head of marketing for a company called Mighty. And I was very much the only French in the village there. And that felt good because I felt like I had the job that would be normally occupied by a British person. So it was more about my skills mm. and my talent and what I brought to the business. And I felt, okay, I've, uh, I think I've, I've arrived to where I wanted to be when I first moved to the UK. I guess like most immigrants, I'm quite proud of what I've achieved because I couldn't take it for granted. I, I built it myself. And I think a lot of people that move countries, regardless where they come from, that plays a big part. You got something to prove and you got to prove yourself that you can do it. My wife was from Brussels originally, and I wasn't very keen uh, on the move because I love London. I love the fact that regardless of being French and having lived in France for my first 25 years, uh, I was still a Londoner. I felt the London identity really strongly. But then at the same time, uh, you know, London is... Uh, Difficult place to live if if you if money is tight, and I think if you're on your own or you haven't got children, kind of uh, you you know you can try to get by and you find ways. But as soon as uh, you build a family, then it becomes a bit too much. So moving to Bristol was brilliant for that. It's smaller, it's similarly like-minded, and there's slightly less pressure on the on the financials, which was a, a great move. So now I fully embrace the Bristolian life, even though from an identity point of view, when people say they're Bristolian, usually they mean they're native. And you can see the slight difference in narrative between being a Londoner or being a Bristolian. I've got a 16-year-old daughter. 
She's an amazing young woman who experiencing loads of different moods and emotions right now, being 16. She's half French, half British, by definition, by nature. It's been very interesting because her mum's British. And even before she was born, I thought a lot about the questions of identity. I remember speaking to dual nationals in their late teens, early 20s at the time, and I was very curious about how they felt in terms of in terms of identity. And uh, I made the conscious decision that you, know, you need to have one co-identity. So she she was definitely brought up as British, but then with the French heritage. So, for example, she went to French school during a late reception and all her primary school years. I was very much to give a, a good mastering of the French language, but also the culture. So uh, she uh, you know, she, she could feel that she could speak to her grandparents in French. Mm-hmm. Or when we go to France in the summer, where she, she can integrate with my friend's friends, friend's kids. Do you speak French together? Is that the language you speak? No, like, like lots of um, multilingual families. I've always spoken to in French at home, but she always replied in English. It's always the um, way, isn't it? Yeah. It is, it is always the way. And, uh, and uh, for a long time, I thought, oh, I should really, uh, I forced it a bit, uh, bit more. But it's, no, it, it was natural. It happened very naturally this way. And it's, uh, a, a French uh, is pretty good. And as long as she, she spends some time in France, it will really come on. But that is a choice. It's a life. Uh, you, know, yeah. it's, you bring your kids to, uh, to this world, but you don't own them. It's, uh, they, they got to make their own decisions. So, Nicola, can you explain, for those people who were in a coma at the time, what happened on the 23rd of June, 2016? Well, I remember waking up thinking, oh, it's going to be okay. Uh, I, went, I actually didn't stay up. I saw Nigel Farr's face on the eve of the result, and uh, yeah, it's okay. And then I woke up, I, I felt like someone died in the family. It, I felt physically sick. I couldn't vote like most EU citizens. I didn't really have a, a voice. I didn't feel represented. No one spoke about us, apart from uh, the promises from the vote leave that uh, our lives would not be changed and uh, our rights would be granted automatically. So after that, that result, I thought, okay, well, I, I need to do something. So I organised then in July 2016 a meeting for the French community. And the theme was weapons to citizens or weapons to the French people and Brexit. So the meeting was in the church hall in, uh, in Bristol. Three days before the meeting, I had this brainwave thinking, actually, it's not just the French, it's all the different Europeans that live in the UK. We're all in the same boat here. So we spoke to uh, the other speakers. I said, OK, well, let's have the meeting in English instead of French and let's open it up to uh, all Europeans. And I think that was uh, that was the foundation of the three million. So the meeting was attended by about two hundred people. The church hall was packed, and we invited an immigration uh, law practitioner. And I think for the first time, many of us realised what it meant to be an immigrant. By the end of the meeting, the atmosphere, the mood of the whole room was really dark. We realize actually we're in a country that treats immigrants in a hostile way. 
after the meeting, people came to see me and say, okay, what do we do now? Great meeting, uh, loads of issues. Uh, and uh, so we met in the pub in a very British way <laughs> the week afterwards. And this is when the, the three million started. Uh, I think two weeks later, we created the forum for EU citizens on Facebook, which now has 43,000 members and remains uh, the main uh, private group for you citizens on Facebook. Hey there. It's been lovely hearing your feedback about the podcast through our social channels and email. Please continue getting in touch, mainly so I don't feel like I'm speaking into a vast black void. My daughter Neve is back with some announcements for you. I've told my friends, teacher and family about my mum's podcast. And why don't you tell your friends and family? They might be looking for something to listen to over the summer break. Also, my mum and me would love it if you could write a short review on iTunes or rate the podcast with five stars. Okay, back to the conversation. Who came up with the name The Three Million? It was a joint effort. I'm a marketer, so uh, I drove the group at the time to go for something that would be representative and be a strong marketing brand. We had to build a campaign to protect our rights if Brexit happened and uh, make sure that the legal status of its citizens, which at the time was derived from uh, the EU treaties, could be replaced with domestic legislation. So from the beginning, there was a slight conflict because Bristol for Europe and other Remain organizations were solely focused on the objective of staying remaining, which they're, they're absolutely right. That's what they're fighting for. But for EU citizens, that was dangerous because uh, if we had done this, well, what would have happened if uh, the campaign uh, didn't succeed? And as we've seen, sadly, it didn't succeed. But uh, because we strongly focused on citizens' rights in isolation of the Brexit debate, if you like, we managed to have an influence on the negotiation. One of the biggest uh, early wins that we got was that citizens' right was at the top of the agenda of the negotiation. It was the top three uh, items. You know, if you remember, there's the Irish border, citizens' right, and, uh, and budget. It could have been different. In partnership, I must say, with British in Europe, because what was very important is that we couldn't be divided. And our, our British friends who have moved to the EU felt were exactly in the same situation as we were, with some specificities. So we had to fight together. And we did that from pretty much December 2016, November 2016. And ever since, and when politicians try to divide us or use that argument about what about the British in Europe, and we would say, well, they are friends, we actually work together, and maybe you need to inform yourself about uh, what we do with them rather than trying to divide us. From a very early age, I thought I'd be running an organization. Uh, because of uh, where I come from, I thought it would be, it'd be a business. I thought uh, one day uh, I'd be an entrepreneur. And I was wondering, uh, you know, mid-40s, would that happen or not? And uh, I had this sort of calling from uh, my teens. And then uh, the, the three million just happened quite organically. But I think I was the, the starting light. Everything I learned, everything I did seems to lead to that moment in time to, to create an organization that will be different 
that would be very professional in its organization and an outcome and outfit and with very, very focused goals. And I think that I succeeded in this. We all got a purpose in life and the purpose might be mysterious or we might, you know, it might not reveal itself. And I feel blessed that somehow that purpose revealed itself and happened. Something I haven't talked about is when I grew up, I was one of four children and two of my sisters were heavily disabled. They both died before they reached 20. They could not speak, they couldn't walk. And uh, growing up as a teen, as a child and a teenager, it was hard to comprehend what it meant, actually. But I think what it gave me is a strong sense of empathy towards the most vulnerable. I thought really at the time of Brexit and then since 2016 is that whatever happens, I'll be fine. I'm a survivor. Uh, I'm very resourceful. <laughs> I always got a, a plan B, which is to live in the Pyrenees <laughs> in a very small place. And I, I wouldn't leave, wouldn't leave, need much really. But at the same time, there are people that won't be fine for no fault of, uh, of their own. They're going to feel hardship. They're going to be excluded from uh, that integration process. And they, they won't be able to get the status that would, that will enable them to live uh, lawfully in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be an option not to be lawful in this country, as we all know. And I think that that, that was the calling, is to be true to yourself, true about your, your feelings, your true feelings, rather than trying to please an eagle that uh, always wants more, more, more. And that's why I think that uh, four years on, Despite all the difficulties of running organization, all the different politics associated with it, I'm still doing it. I'm still really passionate about this because it matches something that's very core in my being. Hmm. I wondered about that transition between the corporate world. You'd been in the corporate world for 20 years, something like that. You seem to have managed it very well. A lot of people do leave the corporate world because it's, it's very soulless. You do feel sometimes you're just selling your soul to the devil and making other people very rich in the meanwhile while you, you try to, to make a living. I think finding a purpose is something that most people love to get to. But at the same time, there is something to be said about the corporate world and the professionalism of uh, working in, in corporate entities. Something like diversity. So we talk a lot about diversity right now, the three million. I think we, we're at the stage of our life as an organization, four years on, that things we do quite intuitively, we need to make it more formal. So in the corporate world, they're quite formal about diversity, but it can be a tick box exercise. Well, actually, in our world, it can't be a tick box exercise. It's something that we got to we got to live basically, and I think that that's the difference. But then it brings much more more rewards basically, because again, you could be truer to yourself about it. The transition wasn't very difficult. I was lucky enough in 2016 to be made redundant. I had lots of time. I had time and money, which is yeah. the magic combination. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> either you got one or the other, usually. So for one year, time and money, which means that I could really develop the three million collectively with others and make sure that uh, we had an organization that could be sustained in the long term and remain really focused, yet very professional. No, I mean, I'm amazed at how much recognition you, you've got after such a short amount of time. It sounds like you were the um, you were in the perfect place at the perfect time, really, in your life, but you had the necessary passion and the necessary skills to pull it off because your EU citizens have never had to come together before, have they? It's never really been necessary. 
And so you must have made lots of good friends out of this. Oh, plenty, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's been a very rich human experience, both in terms of friendship, collaborations, work, actually, working with some really inspiring people. There's someone I got lots of respect for is Sandra Katwala and Jill Butter as well, a British Future. You know, they're trying to influence the narrative on the right on migration in a positive way. We might not agree on everything, but I can see that, they, you know, they got a clear goal that's a bit unique. And that was inspiring for, for us of the three million because we were a bit the same. We had a clear goal that was quite unique and we succeeded in imposing that vision that EU citizens matter to this country. So why do you think, now that you... As you said, you've you've come to feel more like an immigrant than ever before. Why do you think immigration continues to be such a divisive issue? Well, there's a lot of gaslighting around, and uh, especially when there is an election coming up. Politicians, at the end of the day, most of them work for the common good, but they also work for their (laughs) re-election. So they would do anything to get these votes. And I think uh, on the right, there's been too many examples in the past 20 years that having a borderline narrative with a bit of xenophobia seems to reap rewards among you know, the more disfranchised citizens of that country. We've seen it with Brexit, we've seen it with Trump, we've seen it in France with the Front National. If you want to, uh, to get the vote of the disadvantaged, basically, it, it works well to use nationalism. I don't think Britain is more racist now than it was 20 years ago. (laughs) I think possibly in attitude, it's less racist, actually. But the speech has been liberated. The the hate speech has been liberated by Brexit. That's a problem, really, in itself, because then there's also the rise in hate crimes after the Brexit referendum. And that was really, really horrible, because not only we felt like immigrants for the first time after the referendum, but also we then targeted. Maybe it brought us closer to those that are very used to that. I mean, we're talking about uh, if you're Muslim in this country, it's difficult. If, you, uh, if you're a person of colour, it's difficult. If you're disabled, it can be difficult. And going back to the idea of diversity here, mm. is that uh, you know we're a diverse country and Brexit is not a vote for diversity. <laughs> this way. So uh, somehow I, I feel that immigration is raised on an issue before elections. There's clear uh, opinion polls which shows that uh, uh, immigration was a top three issue for Brexit. But since then, it's receded really down uh, the bottom of the list in terms of the key issue of the British people. I've got a difficulty, and we at the Premier really struggle with the fact that quite often immigrants are seen as an economic commodity. So we're here to fill the skills gap. We're here because of jobs. But, you know, it's a cultural element to this. And I, but I feel optimistic that we've had a step back, definitely, with the Brexit referendum. But when we look at what happened in America with Biden, things can change. There's a lot, lot of work to do to actually drive that change. Maybe with the opposition parties, for example. I think that there's a clear immigration stance by the SNP, for example, on uh, saying that we welcome immigration and immigrants in Scotland. For Labour, it's a bit more complicated because some uh, Labour MPs are... Uh, you know, in the red wall, red wall seats, 
the electorate possibly won't agree with that statement. From the point of view of EU citizens, up to the referendum, we are here because of the treaties uh, and because uh, of the integration with Europe. Then the UK left, so we're getting a new status under UK law. Because of this natural context, there's going to be a natural shift towards citizenship. There's a pathway to citizenship from citizen status. I think it's going to be very interesting because when we look at the Commonwealth population, who arrived up to the 70s and after in a different way, most of them have become British. And some thought they were British but were not, and then that was Windrush. We're going to see the same thing for EU citizens. I can absolutely see that. I can see that uh, in 20 years' time, most of the EU citizens that would have stayed would be British. And actually, uh, I think that it should happen in, uh, it should be faster. What should happen really is for the British government to not only organize that pathway, but actually say we want EU citizens who lived here permanently to become British and join the country as British citizens if they want to, if they can. Something that people don't realize right now is that there's no such policy. So the the state, the British state, is agnostic on the pathway to citizenship. There's a process, but it doesn't say we want you to become British. They, you know, they say we want you to stay, but that status, well, yeah, it's uh, there's limits. If you move up because your career takes you elsewhere, you can't come back. There's things like this. We're like, that's not great, really. And there's no strong statement to say we we really actually want you to become British, and we can we can make it easier for you based on the fact that now you're a permanent resident. That's possibly the next big battle. That's not just for your citizens, actually. That's really for all immigrants, whether we like Brexit or not. It's a new national context and we got to adapt. I know so many EU citizens that have become British in the last two years, but they're, they're privileged in a way because they could go through the hoops and they could get the money as well to do it. And I think the, the real success would be, well, firstly, to make sure that everyone got civil status so everyone is safe to stay in the country if they want to. And then if they choose to become British, they should be given the opportunity without the barriers that currently exist. Can I finish with one question? What's a good night out for you? Um, good night out, I guess, being with friends, family and friends, have a nice dinner, and then uh, going for a good dance with some uh, good uh, techno or drum and bass. <laughs> yep. One day it'll happen again. Yes. <laughs> And, um, and do you have a guiding philosophy in life? Do you have something that you say to yourself that keeps you positive, that keeps you going? I'm always very curious about everything, but I guess stay true to yourself and try to find that it means to be, uh, to be you as well. Because of my, my two younger sisters who were disabled and couldn't speak, they, they inspired me. Despite not being able to speak, they show more humanity than most people I know. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're incredible in how they, they transmitted, they, they communicated the energy that came from them. So it's really to always remember that uh, you know, we, we are human beings. We, we're vulnerable, we come with, with flaws, but we can, if we find the common ground together, we can do so much good in this world. Huge thanks to Nicola. I've heard many reasons why people decide to come to the UK, but her special affinity with the British post-punk scene is up there with the best of them. Please check out the work of The Three Million. They really have done phenomenal work since 2016 and will do so for the foreseeable future as the fallout of the Brexit vote continues to affect EU citizens living here. Links are in the show notes. 
You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. Thank you so much for listening. Please share, rate and review. It really does help. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.